Welcome to the Bill Barnwell Show. I am Bill Barnwell. Today, it is our annual week one recap with the man who does such an incredible job of breaking through surface level observations about each game, and which matters the most in week one because we draw such strong conclusions from week one. Always love having this gentleman on to talk about what mattered and what didn't matter from week one. And that is the author of the Stealing Signals newsletter. It's Ben Gretsch. Ben, how are you, sir? I mean, I'm fantastic. Anytime I get a chance to come on with you, it's uh, it's a great day. So this will, <laughs> this will be a blast. Well, let's start, Ben, by talking about something I don't think we need to quantify matters when it comes to the 2023 NFL season. Obviously, the biggest story coming out of week one is the end of one of the biggest stories of the NFL offseason. It's Aaron Rodgers, of course, tearing his Achilles uh, on, on, I believe, his third pass attempt or his third dropback of his Jets career. Um, obviously, I don't think you are listening to this podcast. You've probably heard about this news by now. I would be very confused if you had not somehow heard about Aaron Rodgers' injury, but also listened to fantasy football or football podcasts as such. But injury happens. Aaron Rodgers is done for the year. I wrote about it at ESPN.com. But Ben, I wanted to ask you, you know, from your perspective, in terms of the the Aaron Rodgers injury, obviously, we know going from Aaron Rodgers to Zach Wilson is going to hurt the Jets. But Acknowledging that this injury happened, acknowledging that they seem to be ready to move forward with Zach Wilson, at quarterback, acknowledging that there's not really many options available to the Jets that are going to be significantly better than Zach Wilson, unless someone unexpected gets traded. How do you sort of evaluate the Jets, this Jets team now? It's well, like, if they're not a Super Bowl contender, do you think they can be a playoff team with Zach Wilson at quarterback? It's tricky, right? Um, I, they have a really good offense. Uh, I mean, roster, I guess, right? They have they have they have a good offense. They have a good um, plan in place around him. I, I liked your breakdown on it. I I love Brees Hall. I love yeah. Garrett Wilson. I, I, there's a lot to be excited about. Hall, I mean, last year looked like he could just create plays and be a difference making running back, which. You know, there's a lot of discussion about what that means, right? But um, he last year looked like, you know, early career Adrian Peterson when he had like Tavares Jackson at quarterback and they <laughs> threw for, I think, like 2,500 yards is all, you know. But Peterson was still making these explosive plays every week. And it's like, you even if you tried to load the box, you couldn't stop him. Mm-hmm. Brees looked like that last year. And then he looked like that the other night on Monday yeah. night, even after Rodgers was out of the game. You have Garrett Wilson, who I think is one of the best young receivers in the NFL. You have a lot of pieces in place. It's um, still tricky to imagine because, I mean, Zach Wilson has struggled. He struggled uh, quite a bit. They had to really kind of hide him all throughout this game. They wind up winning it, but in probably more with the, the Bills sort of losing it. And, mm-hmm. I mean, even Josh Allen himself would, would have you know said that in the postgame uh, press conference, mm-hmm. essentially. So, I think Zach Wilson winds up throwing 21 passes in this game. They're obviously, and, and some of them are just him, you know, running back 20 yards and then throwing it out of bounds. You had, the, you know, on the Manicast, they're having a blast with that. But it's, uh, it's, um, yeah, it's tricky. You need a forward passing game, but they do have a lot of talent. Uh, I, I think it's definitely still possible. But I, I mean, are, are they really going to go through the whole year with Zach Wilson as, you know, again, as sort of, the clear anchor on everything they're trying to do. Do they try to, I, I think I, I, I think they're going to try to upgrade is, is sort of where I would go with it. They, it feels like they have to, but even if I don't want to take Robert Sala and what he said at face value, and he said, you know, Zach's going to be our number one because Robert Sala said a lot of things about Zach Wilson last year that did not necessarily turn out to be true in practice. These are, are the people in terms of this front office, in terms of Joe Douglas and Robert Sala, who made the biggest bet anybody's made on Zach Wilson. These are the people who took Zach Wilson with the second overall pick. These are the people who, you know, year one, less so in year two, but as year two started, thought this guy was going to be the next Patrick Mahomes. Like they drafted him to be that guy, that sort of superstar, you know, operate out of schedule or off schedule, make magic happen kind of quarterback. And 
it almost feels like them winning this first game. Like, yes, it's a good thing. Obviously, it was a terrible day for the Jets. It was cool to see them win. The moment was awesome. Um, you know, those fans who were so unhappy getting to go home and celebrate, you know, even in the middle of what might be a lost season was great. And, and that was cool. It almost feels like you don't want them to get off to a good start with Zach Wilson because you don't want Salah and Douglas to convince themselves that they can win games with this guy as opposed to, to your point, actually going out and getting someone who might be more of an upgrade. Yeah, and I, I think they have to already know that. I mean, if they do win games, I can't. I, I can't imagine they look at. I mean, I, they're saying sort of what they have to say, but I, I can't imagine they look at Monday night and they say we won this game with Zach Wilson. I mean, <laughs> or because of Zach Wilson, or I mean, obviously it's it's in spite of. And I mean, the defense is you know elite. I mean, this is this is going to be a good roster regardless, as as we're saying. But um, I I think what I want to see, I guess, um, you know, you broke down some great quarterbacks in the market. You mentioned your, your piece at ESPN. You went, you turned over a lot of stone stones. I don't think you mentioned Matthew Stafford, which probably isn't going to happen. Right. But he looked back in week one at the same time, the Rams aren't great. And so it's, you're talking about the next few weeks, what happens? I think like Maybe they go forth Wilson for a few weeks. This is I'm, I'm kind of parlaying four things that have to happen. But <laughs> the Jets lose a couple of games. They're one and three after week four. The Rams go from one and zero oh to one and three because they don't have a ton of talent around Stafford, and their season does look like it's going the wrong way at a certain point. And then after week four or after week six or something like that, it becomes a logical trade closer to the trade deadline. I don't. I mean. That's just me wish, wish casting. It's the best. It's the best name I can find that would be good for Garrett Wilson and be good for Brees Hall. And uh, you know, coming from the fantasy football world, mm-hmm. the the excitement for this roster and, and those young players, I want them to have something at quarterback because we do know that you know having the wrong guy there can can absolutely sink the offense. And so it's it's a. I mean, you mentioned like Joe Flacco, and I, I, I think that would be an upgrade over Zach Wilson. I hope they go, they go get someone like that at least. Of course, and and that's sort of the the sad thing here is that you know if it had happened in August, it wouldn't have been great, but at least they would have had some time to go out at the end of camp and look for guys and you know see if someone wanted to make a deal. I think Teddy Bridgewater was still out there. They could have went out and you know signed Teddy Bridgewater or somebody. They could still make a move. We'll get to Stafford. I'm going to ask you, I think, about the Rams, but um, it, it's sort of tough because you're, you're sort of balancing these two things you want to do. Like you want to, I guess, evaluate Zach Wilson if you need to. Like if you feel like there's anything left on that bone, um, you want to give Zach Wilson a chance. You want to keep the door open because you assume Aaron Rodgers is coming back next year as a 40 year old on a ton of Achilles. Like I, I, I can't imagine. He's going to want to go out, you know, the way he did after three stops with the Jets. So you can't make like a significant long term commitment, but you also feel like you need to add somebody because you're, you're stuck with this guy who, I mean, you saw Robert Salas face. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like he was hiding how he felt or anybody else felt. Um, it, it really is a difficult position for the Jets to be in. And, and there's no, I think, perfect person who comes to mind, who can sort of straddle all those things unless they go out and, I don't know, Philip Rivers is the guy who always comes up. Tom Brady keeps coming up, and I think people are maybe forgetting he's a part owner of the Raiders, or he's becoming a part owner of the Raiders. <laughs> I, I, I don't think you can be an owner of one team and play for the Jets. Like That seems like it would be against the rules. Um, but, you know, it, it, it really feels like the, what we saw from them in week one has to be at least in some level the formula. Like they ran the ball, you know, it wasn't always consistent, but their big plays were huge. Brees Hall had the 26 yarder to start the game and then the 80 plus yarder to set up uh, a field goal. And they have to, of course, turn those drives into touchdowns as opposed to field goals because it's not going to get a ton of, you know, drives marching up and down the field. And then they force four takeaways. And that was the, 
the thing that was lacking from their defense last year. They only forced 16 turnovers last season. And so forcing more takeaways, um, even if it's not four and it's not a special teams touchdown on top of that, you know, if the defense and special teams are, are top five in takeaways and they're scoring on defense, that might be enough to push them, you know, from being a team with a offense holding the back to a, a defense that's sort of leading the way, like some of the, you know, I think the Steelers come to mind as a team that might want to pull that off, but um, just a, a bummer of a situation. Yeah. And it's not just about making the playoffs as well. Like, I mean, even if they could go all that way with Zach Wilson, like they're not going to win in the, in the playoffs with Zach. I mean, you can't have Zach Wilson running around and just chucking the ball, uh, you know, playing sort of that backyard football style, but not in the like, the way that is typically, you know, glorified, like the Tony Romo way. Um, yeah, I mean, you can't win entirely on running and defense in, in today's NFL, I don't think. But if, if you were if you were ever going to be able to do it, though, like this is a team that could have the best running yeah. back in football and the best defense in football. Like, like if it's ever going to work, admittedly, Zach Wilson is not going to be carrying any part of the load, but it feels like they might have the ability given their ceiling at both those spots to, if anyone can do it, they can do it. Right. And I agree with that entirely, but it's like, you want to get like 25th percentile quarterback play. And I don't even know if we can get that. You mentioned Robert Sala's face and no one's really trying to hide from it. And they're saying all the right things about Zach Wilson. But I think one of the really telling things, not only were they very willing to go get Aaron Rodgers, but you have Zach Wilson as a former second overall pick. Mm-hmm. Usually when these guys kind of flame out, but they're still in the rookie contract, Someone's willing to step in and trade for them and mm-hmm. make it. I mean, we saw it with the you know Josh Rosen getting mm-hmm. moved and Zach Wilson's only ever he never even was mentioned really as a trade candidate this offseason. I think everyone around the league and the Jets and themselves were like, okay, well he's just our backup now. Mm-hmm. He can't do any harm there. Like I, I, I don't want to be too too hard on him, but it does seem to me like you look at their offseason you look at what they did and it makes sense that they wanted to upgrade to Rodgers but the fact that there wasn't even any discussion of him potentially getting traded somewhere else like like a Sam Darnold who then gets other opportunities mm-hmm. <laughs> again that comment you made about Robert Robert Sala's face I mean I just I, I can't imagine they they obviously wanted to see in 2022 in year 2 if he could make the growth I can't imagine they want to do it again in year 3 mm-hmm. uh and and like I said you you can win with the running and the defense. I think if you can get 25th percentile quarterback play, I don't think they think they can get that. I don't think I think they can get that from Zach Wilson. I think you're talking fifth or 10th percentile mm-hmm. quarterback play. You got to be able to at least, you know, maybe Joe Flacco gives you 25th percentile <laughs> quarterback play. It, I mean, it feels like that, that that's a viable upgrade, which is telling because Joe Flacco did not have much interest this offseason either. I mean, Matt Ryan is, you know, doing CBS uh, commentary and it feels like he could step in and being upgraded, it, it's definitely a situation where it's hard to imagine the Jets giving Zach Wilson 16 more starts this year and feeling like they were right to do that. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better with the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country. There is no competition. And right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8-S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a Jets Pizza location near you. Again, try Jets Signature 8-Corner Pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza, better because it has to be. You mentioned Matthew Stafford, and I, I want to start with the Rams. We talk about some of the other teams here uh, who were who stood out and some of the situations that stood out in week one because... I think it's fair to say expectations for this team were low heading into the season, and then they lose Cooper Cup to a recurrence of his hamstring injury. He's on short-term IR. They go to play the Seahawks. It it feels like they don't have anything to compete with Seattle. And not only do they compete with the Seahawks, Ben, but they blow the Seahawks out. I mean, they dominated the second half of that football game, one of the most, one of the least impactful second halves of offense you will ever see from the Seahawks. They were 
basically spending the entire second half on the sideline. The Rams marched up and down the field. They got huge games from Pukunakua, Tutu Atwell, Kyron Williams. Uh, Matthew Stafford looked awesome. To me, he was one of the three best quarterbacks in the NFL from what I saw in week one. So, Ben, when you look at this Rams offense and you look at what might be sustainable or real for them from week to week, do you buy that they can be an offense worth targeting in fantasy football and worth you know paying attention to on Sundays in real football? I do. I do. I mean, I think the, the narrative around them in the fantasy football world pretty much all offseason was – they were this implosion risk and there was this, you know, there was concern about the health obviously of Stafford and cup. And that's been fair so far with Cooper cup. But I, I feel like, and especially when you think about with fantasy football and we try to get into predicting the future, the NFL is so chaotic year to year. It is so difficult to predict that people do sometimes fall into these pattern matching trends where it's, mm-hmm. I, you know, th- that's what happened with the Rams last year, right? They imploded, but that was after a year, the year prior where they played, 21 games and they won the Super Bowl and their offseason, you know, started very late. And there was talk of Sean McVay maybe retiring. And you think about these teams over a multi-year stretch and the individuals in them and their competitiveness and those things. They won the Super Bowl and kind of unexpectedly. And it seemed like a big party for the Rams going into the offseason. And then things didn't go right in 2022. They lose Cup. They lose Stafford. They kind of just give up on the season a little bit, but there was reporting that it was tough in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. It was tough on McVay personally. And, you know, I, I had written in the off season a little that I, I thought we were too quick to say that, you know, this can all implode because I think when you think about them over a multi-year stretch, you think about the, the individuals, the human beings involved, they had a really tough year last year and the motivation going into the off season and those, I mean, we hear about concepts like a Super Bowl hangover mm-hmm. and there's a reason for that. It's an actual thing. Like you have to, there's a lot of details that are involved in an NFL offseason to get yourself ready for the grueling multi-month stretch of weekly, you know, preparation and then execution. They probably just didn't have a very good offseason in 2022 is, is sort of what I'm getting at. And then in 2023, I don't uh, – Sean McVay is a clearly competitive guy and also a clearly sharp offensive mind. Mm-hmm. Matthew Stafford, clearly competitive guy. And one of the things I mentioned when I was writing about him a little bit this offseason is this guy's got a, you know his legacies on the line. He's now won a Super Bowl. This, the Hall of Fame conversations are there. His counting stats are are very strong. He needs to probably continue to play at a decently high level, though, for at least another year or a couple years to really feel like a total lock. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You would have a better read on that than I would. But I, I feel like the fantasy football world was too quick to take the Rams and kind of just say this is a, a team that, They've had to get, you know, sell off a lot of pieces essentially since they really pushed all in for that Super Bowl win. They had to trade Jalen Ramsey. They had to do a lot of different things. And they're just going to implode and be nothing and nothing positive can come from this. And and yet we have individuals in the building and, and McVeigh being one I would really point to mm-hmm. who, again, I feel like it's just too competitive for that. Had, had something to prove. And I think what we saw in week one was a team that came out, and it's, it's a new era of the NFL, the cover two shells, the ways that defenses are playing. There's a lot of different things out there. The Rams are a team that came out in week one and had some answers. There's a lot of offenses that didn't have answers. Mm-hmm. And I was really curious for week one how things might look relative to a 2022 season where scoring was down and a lot of different trends. Air yards were down. Average depth of target was down. Mm-hmm. Rushing efficiency was up because defenses were trying to take away explosives and our offense is going to now have a counterpunch. And some of the best offenses in the league, they didn't in week one. The Chiefs, the Bills, the mm-hmm. Bengals, these teams didn't look great in week one. They didn't look like they have clear answers for what teams want to do to them defensively. The Rams are a team that did look like that. They looked like they could get to the spots they wanted to. They could get downfield. They could create explosives in the passing game. And that, I mean, that's the part of it that is, I mean, it's exciting. That's a part of it that I think you have to be optimistic about going forward that McVeigh understands some of the schematic things and, and where some of the edges might be. You see another guy that comes from that whole coaching tree at Mike McDaniel in San Francisco mm-hmm. having some answers. You see the 49ers having some answers. Mm-hmm. These guys have all worked together in the past, right? Uh, Kyle Shanahan, McDaniel. And so I think, yeah, you got to be optimistic about McVeigh and you got to be optimistic about how Matthew Stafford looked and what they were able to accomplish with 
I mean, a, a day three rookie wide receiver, Puka Nakua, leading the way, right? I mean, they have a lack of, of high profile skill position players, but I mean, that didn't matter. Mm-hmm. You're right. I mean, it felt like, to your point, that coaching tree, that, that the famous Washington coaching staff that uh, Jordan Rodriguez wrote about or, or podcasted about in her series at The Athletic um, yeah. this this summer, it felt like they had the answers in week one. It felt like they were ahead of the curve. Like, you know, the league sort of adjusting to their meta and them being, you know, steps ahead and having answers for, you know, Fangio-style defenses, which a lot of the teams they were facing were running. Um, and, and you know, we saw some stuff with how they used releases, how they used short motion. Um, they were able to create favorable leverage for their receivers. And... Then after that, I mean, you can create opportunities for your receivers, but as we saw in the Chiefs game, they have to catch the football. And, and Puka Nakua, you know, had a great game. Tutu Atwell had a really nice game. You know, they were creating edges, but I really felt like the thing that really impressed me was how healthy Matthew Stafford looked in terms of his movement, in terms of his ability to mm-hmm. improvise, and then how the offensive line looked. And this was a Rams team that I think people forget last year, you know, sort of in the second half of the year, we knew Cup was hurt. We knew Stafford was hurt. We knew Aaron Donald was hurt. And so people weren't watching Rams games very often unless they were on that island game against the Raiders or that island game against the Broncos where they won, you know, with Baker Mayfield, who had been the worst quarterback in football. But they had third string offensive linemen on the field at the end of the season. They were beyond injured at one of the most important spots in all of football. And so, it does make sense that with their first string offensive line back with Matthew Stafford back, that they would look much better. Um, you know, there, there's, there's, it's not perfect. I mean, Cam Akers had a ton of carries in this game for absolutely nothing. It felt like this was the, the 2021 playoff Cam Akers as opposed to the 2022 December Cam Akers looked like he was breaking back out again. But overall, this felt like a very healthy offense. And even if, 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 they're not going to have their top two receivers go for 100 yards every week. It feels like Sean McVay, like to your point, does have answers for how to attack defenses with the personnel he has. And that seems like an exciting possibility. Um, if you're someone who needs a wide receiver in fantasy football, or if you want to, you know, uh, play one of these guys in DFS, or if you are counting on the Rams being a contender this year, it feels like they have a much better shot than what it looked like heading into week one. Yeah, and you mentioned the the Acres thing. I, I just got to tell kind of a, a funny little Please. story. The uh, Seth, Seth Walder had a tweet that I ended up mentioning um, in my Stealing Signals write up about Rashad White, and it was after the morning game. And Rashad White had so many negative rush yards over expectation using the NFL's next gen stats uh, mm-hmm. metric on that. That it was uh, it was I think negative eighty. Rush yards were expected. Or no, oh, no, excuse me. I don't, I don't think it was negative 80. Brees had positive 80. I, I don't know what the exact number was. Uh, it was negative 38. That's what it was. You wouldn't get to 80 on the negative side. But negative 38 um, rush yards over expectation. It would have been tied for the fourth worst uh, rush yards over expectation game of the entire 2022 season. Oof. And then when I was looking into the exact number while writing it up, I saw that he wasn't even the worst of the week because Seth had tweeted that out after the morning games, mm-hmm. but Kim Akers wound up worse. Oh. So he, he hadn't even, I don't know where he would have fallen in the entire 2022 season, mm-hmm. but he, he had a rough go of it in week one. But yeah, I mean, you mentioned in, in terms of the, like the fancy football impact, the pickups, I mean, Puka Nakua is an incredibly exciting player. He's somebody I missed on a little bit in the prospect process. I mean, there's mm-hmm. 30 plus receivers that are drafted. Right. I, I tend to look at, market share, dominator rating, yards per team attempt. These are all stats that control for the overall volume in a pass offense. And you can also look at those and most sites that, that have these stats and control for games missed for the individual player. Mm-hmm. Pukunakua has a really interesting profile in college where he goes to two different colleges, he transfers, and, but he, he doesn't miss necessarily a ton of time. He just never runs a full set of routes. And so there's some really interesting stuff when I was digging into him just after what he did on Sunday a little bit more in his per route run profile, which is a stat that I love and I wish I would have done a better job digging into it in the offseason. But he never really had huge numbers when you control for the team offense in college, which is typically the way that I would look at things. But his targets per route run in college, a career targets per route run over 30% at a really high dot, which is really impressive. It's harder to draw volume downfield, but his mm-hmm. career dot was over 13 yards downfield. He has 
uh, a lot of efficiency on that, a career yards per target over 11. And then there's just an absurd yards per route run when you put all the component parts together, the targets per route run, the yards per target. And that was, you know, that was his college. But then you go look at week one and he actually gets 90% of the routes in his first game in the NFL, which is, I haven't looked at all of his individual game logs in college. But if you look at the routes that he ran in each of his seasons, he probably never had a whole bunch of 90% routes games, even in college, mm-hmm. even at BYU in a, you know, a non-Power 5 uh, situation, but he comes right into the NFL in his first game and he's out there running routes every snap almost. 90% of their dropbacks, he draws a target even at that really high route rate on 43% of his routes. I mean, it's just, it's a fantastic week one game, but because he's been so good per route, I do want to say for the people out there, maybe still have their waivers or in leagues where he maybe didn't get picked up. Guy's got legit size mm-hmm. in, in for the modern NFL, 6'2", 6'1 and a half, 210. I think he looks like a guy who could be a real hit as a rookie, as a day three rookie right away because this team needs someone to be a real hit. And like we talked about, it looks like they have the answers and they want him to run a lot of routes and be part of that, those answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he looked phenomenal in week one, as did so many other players on this Rams offense. Uh, We mentioned the tree from Washington with Mike McDaniel, and we mentioned it with uh, San Francisco and Kyle Shanahan. And that leads me to Brandon Ayuk, who got a ton of hype this offseason. And then he goes off in week one, uh, two touchdowns, a really impressive route on the first one, broke Patrick Peterson's ankles on a in-breaking route for a score. I think he had eight catches in this game, if I'm not mistaken, but huge performance for Brandon Ayuk. So obviously the Niners are not going to be necessarily as good as they were in week one against the Steelers. But Ben, do you think Brandon Ayuk can be you know, sort of challenged for wide receiver one status this year? I mean, it's fascinating, right? Because you, you do have to think on some level that there's going to be some give and take in this offense. Debo Samuel, actually, I thought looked explosive in small moments as well in this game. Didn't have a ton of huge plays, but a lot of talk around him this offseason as well, where he even said he's never going to put anything on tape again like he did in 2022. And he's reportedly sending his head coach, Kyle Shanahan, shirtless pics of, of how in shape he is. Um, I think he's going to have his moments for sure. His ADOT was a lot higher in week one on seven targets. It was over 10 than it was last year. I think he was down at four. Um, and it's it's kind of vacillated year over year with him. So it's interesting to see him getting some downfield looks. You have obviously Christian McCaffrey there running a lot of routes and being an underneath option. George Kittle banged up a little bit, but is going to have his games as well. So you, you get to the math of it and you go, well, they're a really good team. They're going to lead in some games. Mm-hmm. Kyle Shannon likes to run when he's ahead. You can't really expect Brandon Ayuk to just dominate every single game. And especially, I mean, the efficiency, you can't expect him to catch all eight <laughs> targets he sees for, you know, a 15 yards per target, which I think is, I think in week one, he, he averaged about 15 yards per target. He's not going to do that every single week either. Even when he gets seven right targets, there's going to be some games where he only catches four or five of those. So, I, I do think you have to expect a little bit of a boom-bust profile. But, I mean, the, I'm starting with the bad news because the good news is is everything else. Like, the, the whole offseason, right, it was just a constant stream of Brandon Ayuk is ready to break out. Debo himself had, you know, a quote about how you can't guard him in a, in a phone booth. You had the coaches commenting on it. You have all the beat reporters commenting on it. Everyone saw this from Brandon Ayuk. If you were following it in the offseason, we joke about how there's always offseason buzz and hype and there's, you know, these drumbeat players. But Brandon Ayuk was a legit drumbeat player where everyone was talking mm-hmm. about it all offseason. Everyone who got eyes on him had to talk about or write about how good he looked. And then he goes out in week one and shows you exactly why everyone was saying that. His first touchdown, like you said, it's a it's a route where he's running right at the DB. He puts a little shake on the DB. Like it's the biggest like broken ankle highlight of week one. He falls backwards and Brandon Ayuk is wide open in the end zone for an easy catch. The second one, he's got a contested situation at the front pylon. He has no space on the sideline and he wins in a contested catch situation, gets physical, gets his feet down. He looked like he could win in every way you you could possibly need to win as a receiver. He looked like he was unguardable. Every single target to him was a successful play. The only concern for me at all 
is that you have Debo and Kittle and McCaffrey, and those guys are going to do more in the passing game than they did in week one. It's an embarrassment of riches for the 49ers. It's an embarrassment of riches for Brock Purdy. You want pieces of this offense in fantasy, and Ayuk definitely looks like one that, I mean, if I had to take him or Debo, like after week one, I'm probably taking him over Debo, which he went several rounds behind mm-hmm. him in, in draft season. But I don't, it's not meant to say that I'm out on Debo. I'm just rising Ayuk up that much already. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's going to be weeks where Debo gets his or Kittle has, you know, two touchdowns or McCaffrey gets some crazy receiving volume. But it does feel like Ayuk belongs in that group now. Whereas maybe in years past, it was, you know, McCaffrey was, of course, the the number one running back as in terms of receivers in football. Kittle was an elite tight end. Debo had the crazy, crazy upside, um, you know, the, the yard after catch outlier. And he's still that guy. But, you know, now it feels like we should be talking about Ayuk as like, you know, part of a big four as opposed to a big three. And then a guy in Ayuk who's a good wide receiver, too, but not necessarily going to be the guy who breaks out the way he did. But, yeah, I mean, I think the the point you made that I really liked is his ability to win in these different ways. Like you don't have to, you know, hide his speed. You don't have to hide him in terms of releases off the line of scrimmage because he doesn't have the strength to get off the line of scrimmage. Like he, he can do everything. The only problem is just, there's so many options out there. So, you know, I, I think the best case scenario for Ayuk, you don't want to root for players to get hurt, but if one of those guys does get injured, which, you know, Kittle was questionable in week one, Debo, Christian McCaffrey, each have significant injury histories. You know, if the offense does condense to where instead of being four guys who demand significant targets or significant, uh, you know, touches, if it's only three or only two, then Ayuk could have a really impressive season. Um, Let's talk about, let's do, let's finish up the, Commander's tree by talking about the Dolphins. And that was the most explosive game in week one. Tua goes for nearly 500 passing yards. Tyreek over 200 in his first game. Ben, do you think this offense can be better in 2023 than it was in 2022 at its peak? Of course, not counting the Skylar Thompson days. I'm saying in terms of when Tua was on the field, do you think they can be better this year than they were last year? Well, and that's Crazy, because when when you look at Tua, he, he I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people realize this, but he led the NFL in, you know, multiple major mm-hmm. passing categories last year. What, what was it? Uh, yards per yards attempt, per attempt yards per touchdown attempt. rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and then he comes out in week one. But, like, I, I think it's a very fair question. I, these guys went for 8.2 yards per play. No other offense in the NFL went for more than six in week one. They were obviously explosive and and, i mean it was so fascinating for me to see it happen against the chargers because you look at a a, a lot of the pushback i got in this offseason against like saying that Tua was very undervalued um being willing to take both tyreek and waddle as high as they are both going a lot of the pushback was look at what happened to them down the stretch and and really um, like even when Tua was back, like they didn't play as well. And really the biggest game there was the Chargers game where they went to, to Los Angeles and Staley sort of took away all of their in-breaking routes and their deep middle. They, there was a point last season where Tyreek and Waddle and Gasicki were all like top four in the NFL in receptions in the deep middle you know, area of the field, which is a historically very efficient area of the field. And it's like Mike McDaniel just can do whatever he wants. He can just get his guys open in this easy, you know, like then how can three players from the same team be in the top four in the NFL at, at attacking the space? But the Chargers found an answer to that and they took that away. And Tua only completed 10 passes. I think he was like 10 of 24 or something like that. They had a, just an absolutely atrocious offensive game and the Chargers basically ran him off the field last year. So for them to come back this year in week one and to have all these answers and to look this explosive against Brandon Staley and the Chargers and to have new answers to the answers that Staley had for them late last season is just, it's so compelling. It's so, I mean, you have to be really high on what Mike McDaniel's doing. You have to be really high on the whole offense. I had some people comment sort of almost negatively around Jalen Waddle and some of the fantasy conversations that I'm in. And I was like, I don't see how you can be out on Jalen Waddle at all. Like, I understand Tyreek got 15 targets, Waddle got five. And so you're like, yeah, there's this huge gap. 
Tyreek goes and has a 200-yard game. But Waddle has a four-catch, 78-yard game that looked way too easy. And, I mean, 78 yards is nothing to just, like, sneeze at, first mm-hmm. of all. But also, we know from last year that when this team was functioning, you know, very well, that you had both Tyreek and Waddle, and it was very concentrated on those players. In week one, it was, I think, also promising that you got some production from Braxton Berrios mm-hmm. and River Craycraft, and Durham Smythe runs a bunch of routes and looks like he might be able to do something for him. On uh, Craycraft's touchdown, I thought that was going to Smythe because Smythe, Smythe was wide open in the front of the end zone <laughs> and Tua hit Craycraft in the back of the end zone. But, like, those additional pieces look like they might be able to, to help as well. But, like, we can't get it confused. Those guys are not going to threaten Jalen Waddle, and they're certainly not going to threaten Tyreek Hill. Mm-hmm. But the way this operated last year was a two-receiver, um, you know, highly concentrated situation. You go back and look at the volume numbers. You go back and look at the actual production that's why they were both going so high in fantasy. And if it's going to run this explosively and Tyreek's going to have 200 yards in week one and do what he did and have one of the best you know fantasy wide receiver games you'll ever see, teams are going to have to find an answer for Tyreek Hill. And then the, the we saw last year that what happens next is that Jalen Waddell has 150 yards mm-hmm. and two touchdowns. Yep. So I, I think you're, you're really in on Tua. You're really in on Tyreek. You're really in on Waddell. The question of whether they could be even better than last year is almost like, I talk a lot about how we're looking for these unprojectable outcomes Mm -hmm. where like I do projections every year. We talk about projections, but in fantasy, what wins are these things that rewrite record books, right? They're things that are just, you can't actually project them in any kind of median sense. They're these Mm -hmm. outlier seasons. We're looking for outliers. The Dolphins in some ways were an outlier last year. Could they be even more of an outlier this year? There's a, a, there's a really significant chance. And if that's a 10% chance, Mm -hmm. even like that's a way larger chance than there there has any right to be. Mm -hmm. So no, like, I don't think they're probably going to be better, especially per play than when they were last year. Cause that's like, it's like impossible bar to hit, but I do think they have this really outsized chance for a really impactful season no one should have as much of a chance as they look like in week one, they might have the ability to be as an offense. So yeah, you want to be in on these guys. If you have them, you're not, you're not selling high. If there's some way you can trade for like a Jalen Waddle, I think you want to get pieces of this offense. Absolutely. Yeah. To your point last, uh, last year, week one, uh, Dolphins Patriots game. It's a quiet game for the offense. Relatively. They score 20 points. Um, Jalen Waddle has five targets for 69 yards. Uh, Tyreek Hill, 12 targets, I think 92 yards. So Tyreek, you know, 12 to 5, significant target share. The next week is the Ravens game. Jalen Waddle goes for 171 yards and two targets, or uh, two touchdowns on 19 targets. Tyreek Hill, of course, still tops him, but 190 and two on 13 targets. So, so you're, so you're saying I was just talking about the the 2022 yeah. week two outcome? Yeah, <laughs> which I mean, hey, that's pr- proof of concept, right? Like, you know, yeah. crazier things have happened. And, um, who do the Dolphins play this week? They play the Patriots. They're at New England. So maybe not a significant, not as significant of a chance of a shootout, but I don't think anyone projected that Ravens game to be a crazy shootout. And that's exactly what happened. So um, obviously the Dolphins, I think, an offense that looked really good. And by the way, um, did anybody have week one break better for them than the Dolphins? Uh, you have... The Patriots lose, the Bills lose, the Chiefs lose, the Bengals lose, uh, the Chargers Aaron lose. Rogers. Aaron Rodgers gets hurt and he's done for the year. Josh Allen looks like he's in Josh Allen world again, and you know he's indulging the worst the worst parts of of his incredible ability. Um, it feels like they're in such better shape now, and their their path towards you know possibly winning it, the division is so, so much better than it was a week ago. Coming into this season, you're looking at the AFC East like you're like this is going to be one of the best div- divisions in football, mm-hmm. and it's tough on the Jets. It's tough on the Dolphins to imagine like, and, and it's the Dolphins where everything broke right. Where suddenly like, are they the favorites to win the division? Like, how much more confident than pre week one do they feel like as a, a potential pick to win that division? I I, I could have seen picking them pre week one, but I don't think it would have been with any level of confidence. Right. Like like I was saying. The only other team I think when you said did it, who it broke well for is just another AFC team it would, would be Jacksonville, mm-hmm. where that you know they're up on their whole the rest of their division loses, and and like you said, everyone um, else significant other than Miami and I guess Baltimore, Cleveland both get wins, but most of the AFC 
you know, some of the power players lose. And, and so, yeah, I mean, teams like Miami, Jacksonville, those teams are in great, much improved situations going into to week two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ESPN's football power index at the Dolphins with a basically 25% chance to win the division before week one. They're now up over 50%, so double wow. um, their divisional odds. I think that does incorporate knowing Aaron Rodgers is injured. So, um, you know, obviously they are a very high variance team, but to your point, you want to chase high variance teams for the upside they have in fantasy football. Doubling your odds to win the division in one week. Nice. <laughs> I mean, that's probably doesn't happen a whole lot in week one with this much time left. No, exactly. But definitely can make that case for the Dolphins. Okay, Ben, we have to do it at some point. Might as well pull the pull the uh, pull the ripcord now. I think you know this is coming. We have to talk about the Atlanta Falcons, and I'm I'm <laughs> I'm I'm, I'm going to frame it this way. For whatever amount of hope you had that Drake London and Kyle Pitts could be viable week-to-week starters with you know significant upside in fantasy football, what did Week One do to those feelings? Are they are, have they totally dissipated? Are you absolutely out? Are you at least willing to consider the possibility to be the tiniest bit hopeful? Like like, where do you stand on Pitts and London after what we saw from the Falcons in Week One? Man, I mean, <clears throat> when you start talking about in terms of you know hopefulness and how I'm feeling and those things, there, there's a lot of things that go through my mind, right? Like I think the first thing is like I, I may have already been plenty scarred and a little dead inside from Arthur Smith last year. And I mean, look, Arthur Smith, a lot of, a lot of people defend him as a coach. I don't want to go in on him too hard, but I'm a, I'm a fantasy football writer and and podcaster. That's my, my life. And he loves to to come at the fantasy football writers. So I got to be able to come back, come at him a little bit too. His big comment after the game was in the fantasy uh, he'll leave all that stuff for the fantasy writers. And last year, you know, he's, he he made it very clear he didn't really care about the fantasy stats and those things. Mm-hmm. It it is um, interesting that like he had a comment that like Drake London doesn't doesn't care about this. I mean, those guys, Drake London, Kyle Pitts. I don't know. I, I can't imagine being as competitive as those guys certainly are, and getting to the place that you do, and being a top ten draft pick, and then and then having to just run block. And, and be content with two or three targets all game. I mean, it's got to be really difficult for young professionals, but they they handle it incredibly well. We've never heard a peep from them. You listen to Kyle Pitts in interviews, and he's like all about the team. So, I mean, hats off to those to those people because I would have a hard time with that personally. I know there's a lot of receivers, receiver traditionally, a, you know, a diva position, a lot of receivers that would have a really hard time with that, right? Like, can you imagine – like a Stefan Diggs in this offense, like he would not, <laughs> I don't think, be as happy as Arthur Smith claims that Drake London is. As far as where, like what I feel about the Falcons going forward, I, I do think you can have some optimism for Pitts specifically. You look at what happened with the tight end scoring this week. You look at the plays he did make. He made a nice little catch on the sideline. Mm-hmm. And then the downfield play where he fought through a defensive pass interference, a du- double coverage, mm-hmm. and he makes kind of a diving catch. Gains uh, 30 plus yards, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, he is so athletic and so talented. I just, I, I mean, look, week one looked like everything from last year, but it is really hard to imagine they have an entire another season where it's the same low volume every single week. The 18 pass attempts in week one here in 2023 is such a small number and nine of those go to Bijan Robinson and Tyler Algier. You have Desmond Ritter's averaged up the target very, very low, mm-hmm. but also in a game where they weren't really getting threatened. Bryce Young, I think, is going to be a fantastic player. And I thought he looked really good at times in this game, but he struggled late. He threw a couple of bad interceptions and got Atlanta back on the field in good spots where they could kind of run the ball. I think they're going to be put in positions where they have to throw more, where Ritter's going to have to force the ball downfield more. I think clearly Arthur Smith when they are in a game and when they're in control of a game, wants to play a certain type of way. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to get nine, you know, targets to the wide receivers and tight ends uh, for a whole game very often, where, you know, the other nine, obviously, I mentioned went to the running back. So I do think you have to expect that most weeks there's even, I mean, even in an extreme low situation, even when you look at the 2022 Falcons, these 18 attempts 
were below what they were averaging last mm-hmm. year. This is a very small number here in week one. It was um, it was painful to watch. It brought up a lot of the 2022 <laughs> memories. I'm, I'm more concerned about London because if you drafted him, you paid a, a little bit of a higher price. Mm-hmm. And because the wide receiver position has a lot more options, mm-hmm. a little bit of a higher bar in fantasy football in terms of production, and I think it's going to be hit or miss. You can accept hit or miss a little bit more tight end. Mm-hmm. And I think Pitts did enough good things that we have to hope that, like he, his knee looked good. I thought that when you know he starts to to get a few more targets, when they do throw a little bit more, and they will, I, I think, throw <laughs> a little bit more. Uh, um, that, that Pitts is going to have the weekly ceiling that you just hope your tight end has, because I mean, we saw in this week as soon as Travis Kelsey was out and Mark Andrews was out, I mean, Hunter Henry was the top scoring tight end I think in PPR leagues, and he had like 15 points. Like it wasn't a week for for fantasy football tight ends to be, you know, strongly producing. So while Pitts, you know, it's concerning for him, you can also say, well, yeah, I mean, if they throw more in any game, he still has the athleticism to put up a 20-point game. And mm-hmm. then there's just not a lot of tight ends that that have that type of ceiling. So he's a guy that I think you have to hold out some hope for. I'm trying to be optimistic here, Bill. It's it's not good. Yeah. It's not good. I mean, here's the part that frustrates me. And, and you can talk about Arthur Smith as a play caller, as a head coach. I will say I was very down on the Falcons last year. And they exceeded expectations. They lived up to their record from the prior year. Their underlying metrics improved. And one of the reasons why is that the offense was good. It was like 12th in the NFL in DVOA. And so, hey, if you're going to be a top 12 offense by DVOA with Marcus Mariota as your quarterback and Desmond Ritter as your quarterback for the final month of the year, even if it's not to my liking, you're doing something right. And and I, I can't poke too many holes in that. But this, I mean, I can. Okay, maybe you can. Oh, but, but like like overall, if, if that's what your offense is, that's not the problem with your football team. But this was not a game where the offense was good. It's not like they ran for 250 yards in this game. It's not like they were um, dominating on that side of the football. In fact, they were dismal for most of the contest in this game on offense. They had their first five, six, seven, eight drives. Had One one drive had more than 17 yards of offense and had 36 yards. They get a touchdown on, those, on one of those drives because the, the Panthers turn the ball over inside the 20-yard line. Bryce Young throws an interception. Um, they turn a second Bryce Young interception into a field goal. So they have 10 points on their first eight drives, and both of them come from interceptions. That's not a good offense. They did have two touchdown drives in, in the for, in late in the fourth quarter, early fourth quarter, late fourth quarter. And hey, that's fine. You get your two scores late. No big deal. But this was not an offense that was functional for the vast majority of this game. Desmond Ritter, the number that really stood out to me, that really concerns me more than anything, Desmond Ritter averaged 3.3 air yards per throw in right. this game. And that's, that's the issue for me is that if you want to be a run first offense. Okay. You have the personnel to do it. You have a great offensive line. You can make that offense work. We saw it in Tennessee with Derrick Henry when Arthur Smith was there. But the difference, the difference there is that when Ryan Tannehill threw, he was chucking big plays downfield off of play action. He was hitting AJ Brown on digs. He was hitting, um, you know, the various receivers they had around AJ Brown. Corey Davis had that big year. You know, when they, they did throw the ball, they were getting chunk plays off of those throws. Mm-hmm. And, the Falcons, when they throw the ball, it's it's screens. Like it's not that that Kyle Pitts deep reception was, I think, the only deep completion Desmond Ritter had all game, and that is my concern with Drake London and Kyle Pitts. Is that I could have imagined a scenario where the Falcons were run heavy, but they took more play action shots, and when Drake London, if he only got three or four targets a game, well you know, there's a good chance he was going to turn those into 50, 60 yards and maybe he'd score and maybe they'd be the upside for more when they had to throw. But they weren't even doing that in this game. That's what scares me. Right. And that this would be my my complaint. You, and you make a fair point that they were efficient last year. You mentioned they were 12th in, in DVOA, but I don't think anyone argues that Arthur Smith can design a good run game. He might be the best run game designer in the NFL. I mean, I think a lot of people would say Kyle Shanahan. They would say a lot of different names, but the fact that they, the last couple of years have been able to have an above average offense. I mean, particularly last year and and essentially not even trying to throw the ball 
and, and defenses know what you want to do and you can still run effectively, it has to speak somewhere schematically. I'm not a big X's and O's guy, but it has to speak somewhere to Arthur Smith really being able to design a ground game. Mm-hmm. And I, I will absolutely give him credit for that. My issue is you can't win solely on the ground in 2023. You just talked about a bunch of problems there where I, 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 it feels like he doesn't want to throw the ball. Like he's not willing to throw the ball. And people will point to Marcus Mariota. And Marcus Mariota had a lot, a really high uncatchable pass rate last year. But my argument would be you're not throwing in enough non-obvious spots. You're not throwing on enough early downs where efficient passing efficiency is better. You're asking him to throw on third and longs when the running didn't work on first and second down. And you're asking him to throw after you've run six straight plays and then to drop back and, and read the field. And maybe he hasn't – I mean, I, I look, he's an NFL quarterback. He's got to be able to do his job. But how many – Times are you dropping back and actually reading the secondary and actually, you know, getting through your progressions in a game? I, I think when you don't develop something, it's hard to then ask it when you're trailing in the fourth quarter to work. And and I think that's part of why we saw a lot of Marcus Mariota uncatchable balls last year. And I think that's part of why Desmond Ritter's air yards per attempt were so low this game. You only have him throw 18 times, right? He's not getting into the rhythm of the game. This was a big complaint for me. Um, I remember for for whatever reason, with Justin Fields. But in Justin Fields' rookie year, people were ripping on him, and uh, they had Andy Dalton at the time. And Matt Nagy, when Andy Dalton was out there, would throw on early downs, and he wasn't comfortable doing it with Fields. So he was keeping Fields' pass right down, and he was trying to protect the rookie Justin Fields. The problem was that Fields was then only passing on third and longs in the non-obvious situations where league-wide pass efficiency is much lower. And so you're asking him to try to be successful in only the toughest passing situations. And Andy Dalton, and you, you think you're protecting him. And then Andy Dalton, the veteran, is the one that you're actually letting get into a little bit of a rhythm by throwing on downs where the defense thinks you might be running the ball. I'm not you know, positive on this whole theory, but I do. it is an issue for me, I think, a little bit that we – we sort of just blame the quarterback. We blame Marcus Mariota. We blame Desmond Ritter for, you know, uh, not necessarily, I certainly don't think that's what you were doing, but it, when we look at the low dot, we can say, well, Ritter's got to be able to take his shots downfield. And then we say, well, he still had, you know, a, a decent offense. He was 12th in DVOA last year. How much better could that offense have been? And that might cut both ways. Some people would say, well, he had Marcus Mariota, a quarterback. It couldn't have been much better. My argument would be that you didn't develop a passing game. So you can't, see what it might have been. You still had Kyle Pitts and Drake London. If you were trying to develop that, if you were throwing in certain situations just to throw, just to develop Marcus Mariota's connection with Kyle Pitts and Drake London, there might have been untapped upside with that offense mm-hmm. even last year. And I, and I think it's the issue with what I saw on Sunday as well. You're in a game where you feel like you're controlling it. Your defense is making things difficult for Bryce Young. I want to see you let Desmond Ritter drop back and throw. Mm -hmm. And I want to see you get Kyle Pitts out there and working on his releases and working on his routes and Drake London out there and catching some passes so that when you do fall behind by two scores in a couple of weeks, those guys are all, you know, confident in the things they have to do in the passing game. But he seems as a coach to not have any interest in developing the passing game. If he can win without throwing the ball down the field, he will. And, and then he'll tell reporters in a very churlish tone that we're all, you know, the people that are asking for him to develop these two top 10 receiving talents that, that you know, we're just fantasy football uh, fans, which he did to, to Greg Almond. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, I, I have a problem with that. I, I think it, even if he's finding success and even if he can devise a really strong rushing attack, I think it's too one dimensional. And I don't think there's actual upside. I think the upside is you build a 500 team. Mm-hmm. I don't think you're giving yourself a chance to actually go to the playoffs and win in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. And and I think the part that I find so frustrating is, you know, if you're going to be very dismissive of, oh, well, you know, that's just a fantasy football concern. It's not like people are complaining because they took Drake London and Cal Pitts very high in their fantasy drafts. That's the only reason it's coming up. Like the Falcons were the ones who chose to take Kyle Pitts in the top 10. They're the ones who chose to take Drake London in the top 10. And so with all due respect to their ability as blockers, which you know I'm sure they're fine. I don't think Kyle Pitts is Rob Gronkowski or George Kittle or anything when it comes to blocking. Like it, it, It's not a good use of your team resources to take these very exciting you know, possibly devastating receivers in the top 10 right? and then never used them. That's why it's a 
legitimate football question, not a fantasy football question, because it, it sort of raises concerns about what is your team building philosophy? How are you building this roster? Right. You know, are you really getting the most out of the players you have? What's the ceiling? And the thing that I hate, and I, I mean, look, I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan. I, I certainly lean more towards the passing game. I'm a fan of Kyle Pitts. I'm a fan of Drake London. They're guys I really liked coming out of college. The thing that I hate is then you start to get, you know, especially in the fantasy space, you get people saying, Kyle Pitts sucks. You know, the, the trolls on Twitter, Drake London sucks. They ruined my fantasy team. It is not on them. <laughs> I mean, I just, I can't emphasize that enough. You look at their targets per route run, the things they did with the opportunities they were given last year. Maybe there's, you know, some some layers to it where you can say they haven't developed as well as they maybe should have. And that's why they're, they're not able to throw as much. I don't know. If you want to make some some cases like that, you could. The way that I look at it, it's an Atlanta Falcons organizational, or maybe not even organizational, just coaching schematic, philosophical decision to essentially take away the ways that those guys, and like you just said, they could be dynamic impacts on the game, and they're choosing to kind of take that away with the, the plays they're calling and the schemes that they're running. And I mean, the, my, the biggest thing that I would say when I am critical of Arthur Smith is, I just don't want to see that criticism levied on on Kyle Pitts and on Drake London, these young talent. I think they're going to be really good when they get an opportunity to play in a real offense someday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hopefully that is sooner rather than later. Um, now let's finish up. One more person I want to ask you about uh, a, a player who had significant upside in drafts this year. I think there was a lot of unknown about how he would look in week one, his debut as an NFL player. And that's Anthony Richardson of the Indianapolis Colts. We know the preseason numbers were not great, um, but I, I think after looking at that week one tape and looking at what his role was, the offense that we saw in the preseason is very different than what Anthony Richardson was running in week one. So against the Jaguars, didn't get the victory, but were you optimistic about Anthony Richardson's ability to, at the very least, keep this job all season without being benched? Yeah, I mean, certainly. And that was a concern for me going in. You look at the, the mobility, you immediately think about the mobile quarterbacks and how, how effective they can be in fantasy football. The rushing provides such a nice scoring floor and fantasy scoring and then also allows for the big ceiling games where you're getting, you know, some rushing points. And then if there's, a, you know, the, the, the strong passing game with it, 250, 300 yards and a couple of touchdowns passing as well. And suddenly you have a 30 point fantasy game. And so you look at this guy's profile and you go, this guy could be a fantasy star. And I, I was concerned though. I mean, the biggest, the most important trait for me with quarterback evaluation is accuracy. And, and you read the reports on Richardson certainly didn't play a ton in college. And so it's, he needs time to develop, but the, the thing that continued to come up, and I don't consider myself a quarterback, you know, a scout or anything like that. But the thing that constantly came up from the people who do review this stuff and watched him a ton was that accuracy was a real issue and a real concern. Now he's an other world athlete. There's a lot of other things about him. Apparently incredible makeup and exactly the kind of guy that you want uh, leading your franchise. But the accuracy can be a, a huge problem at the NFL level where the windows get tighter and, and the decisions get shorter. And I, I did have some concerns with his accuracy in week one. At the same time, he, I mean, I, I'm, that, that's a guy where I'm happy for him. You want guys in roles where they, they can succeed because I think Shane Steichen is exactly the coach that you want. I mean, he's the guy who comes over from Philly. You, you're getting that Hurts offense. You're getting the read option. You're getting the RPOs. You're getting the things that – and obviously the RPOs are going to sort of simplify the reads on some passing plays. He's obviously still going to have to make the reads on other passing plays. But as he develops – and he's a young guy. He's going to – be in an offense that uses some of his strengths, I think, in a very positive way. So, uh, and then the fact they're, they're they're willing to play with some tempo. The, I mean, everything about this game to me uh, was positive for what you said in terms of you know Richardson playing the whole year and all those things. They're not probably trying to to win a ton of games this year. He needs to develop this year, and he has to develop at at the NFL level after not having played a ton of college snaps, and that's a challenge. I mean, that's a challenge. Uh, I'm pretty sure he's a, he's a 21 year old rookie too, right? Or he might be 22, but he's young. Mm -hmm. He's definitely on the young side. Um, but the opportunity to run, the opportunity to um, <clears throat> make some simpler reads, I guess, mm -hmm. but also, I mean, complex ones throughout this game. Like I said, a little bit of concern about 
um, the accuracy, but we, you know, we talk about the cover two shells and the ways that defenses are playing things. One of the things that was really successful last year was the offenses that had mobile quarterbacks and could attack rushing the ball in multiple ways. The, the read options that you, you got a running back running up the middle or the quarterback can pull it and go to the edge and it causes the defense to spread out and you can be efficient running the ball. So one of the things the Eagles did incredibly well all year, and then you throw off of that. And I think it's just, again, a really nice fit with Steichen and Richardson. Um, and it looks like they're going to be able to be a functional offense mm-hmm. in that, you know, in that offense and in that mold, which is, again, like, I mean, that's a positive. It's great to see. Not every rookie quarterback comes in and is immediately as functional as Richardson was in terms of moving the ball in those things. Uh, I thought I, I thought Stroud and, and Young, frankly, looked good as well. I think one of the big takeaways from Week One was mm-hmm. all three rookie quarterbacks look like they're not going to be so bad that they're going to need to get benched. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to kind of put it on that bar. But that's the the reality of being a rookie quarterback in Week One of the NFL is sometimes it's just a challenge right away, and you do have to get benched for a little bit. It looked like all three of these guys, I think, can handle the speed of the game that you know that they're now in, and and are going to be able to play through it and at least move the ball a little bit. And, and there are cities and their offenses and their fan bases are going to get to see hopefully a lot of development throughout the year. So, yeah, I was really, really uh, – I, I came away really pleased about Richardson. I, like I said, I was a little concerned about the actually I didn't draft as much of him mm-hmm. as I would have liked to in fantasy, and I came away concerned because I think he's going to be – for my own teams, because I think he's going to be uh, a very solid fantasy player uh, all season long. Yeah, I mean the rushing – Gives him a, a meaningful floor. And then, of course, you know, if he does have a big passing game, which he did not have a big passing game this week, but he was functional, uh, 24, 24 of 37 for 223 with a touchdown and an interception, um, you know, that's going to play. And I, I think to your point, you know, you brought up the, the rushing quarterbacks, you know, sort of giving teams some some issues and you're 100% correct. It, it, it changes the way you have to play defense because if you want to play, you know, too high against a quarterback who's going to be, part of your run game, you're going to be at a disadvantage every single down in terms of the numbers game. The offense is always going to be one ahead of you. It might even be two ahead of you, depending on who they choose to block. So that forces teams to bring a safety into the box, which opens up opportunities downfield. I mean, it's the classic conundrum teams have had facing Lamar Jackson in years past is, you know, do we, you know, do, do, do we bring an eighth player into the box? Or do we play too deep and let them run the ball? And when they played single high, Lamar Jackson, you know, on those deep overs to Mark Andrews, um, on the shots downfield, like they they hit their shots when the offense was playing well. So, I think Anthony Richardson's going to bring the same sort of problems to opposing defenses this year. It's not going to be consistent. There are going to be weeks where he struggles, but there's going to be real upside, you know, when he does hit a sixty-yard bomb for a touchdown in a given week. And you know, you talked about this a little bit in your column, like. This is a game where if the Colts had Jonathan Taylor, it might have been a very different situation. Deion Jackson, sure. who was the primary back in this game, had 13 carries for 14 yards with two fumbles. Like Jonathan Taylor could have been a difference maker in this game. So if they do get Jonathan Taylor back, that's only going to increase Anthony Richardson's efficiency and increase the upside of this offense as well. For sure. The, the only things I'm watching, he only completed three passes more than 10 yards down the field. He only through 10. So it wasn't like he was chucking them. He had a, sure. another guy with a low a dot in week one. Michael Pittman has a really nice game. He has a, an a dot of just 6.6. 6. Um, you know, all of their guys kind of on the low end there. Uh, and then the second thing was he only threw to the left side of the field by NFL next gen stats quadrants, or, or I guess thirds of the field. They have the, you know, sort of the left mm-hmm. middle and right uh, only threw to the left side four times completed two of those passes but was very heavily um, targeting the middle and then specifically the right. And we see that sometimes with young quarterbacks where they are thrown to their arm side a lot and then defenses start to pick up on that and try to force them to throw back to the left. That was a, you know, a Mitchell Trubisky thing for a long time. That's something that we're going to need to see him make throws to the left side of the field, certainly, or else it's going to get caught. It's going to get figured out pretty quick. We're going to need to see him make throws down. The field, I think he'll develop those things certainly, and it was a it was a positive week one, but just a couple things that we're going to have to keep an eye on for sure. Mm-hmm. So Ben, obviously, we could talk about every single one of these teams. There's a lot to get to in week one, but if people want to read about all 32 teams and what mattered and didn't matter for them from week one, where can they do that? Yeah the the newsletters at Ben Gretsch. 
www.substack.com, B-E-N-G-R-E-T-C-H. Uh, it's called Stealing Signals. It's just a Substack newsletter that comes out every Monday and Tuesday. On Monday, I write about Thursday night football and all the early Sunday games. And then on Tuesday, I hit all the late Sunday games, Sunday night football, Monday night football, a big recap. The whole idea is kind of breaking down the games, hopefully trying to make it fun, talk through some real football stuff as well, coaching decisions, et cetera. But it is a fantasy-focused article where I'm breaking down sort of player value. And at the end of each game, I'm saying what was signal and what was noise. That's the the tip to the, to the, to the name, stealing signals. Um, so I'm telling you what of the recent trends and the stats and the information is going to be consistent going forward. And that's the signal and what was noisy and we're not going to see continue so that you'll know how to play your teams, you know, going forward. Mm So yeah, it's a, it's a long fun process every week. I I obviously appreciate everyone who reads it and it's uh it's, yeah, it's a, it's a labor of love (laughs) for sure. And you're all over the podcast and YouTube worlds as well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, stealing bananas podcast, the ship chasing podcast. Um, I'm probably forgetting some other stuff, but I think those are the main main two. For sure. Ben, uh, like always, I love having you on for this week one podcast every year. Thank you, Ad, a lot. Thanks so much again for doing it. Thank you. It's a, it's always a blast. I love talking with you. All right. Thanks so much to Ben Gretsch. Definitely check out his newsletter. Um, one of the things I read every week to help stay abreast of what's happening in the National Football League. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this week's action. Obviously, Some crazy stuff, some stuff I wasn't expecting, some stuff nobody was expecting, Uh, but hope you guys enjoyed week one and more football on the way. Every Thursday, uh, this podcast comes out every Thursday morning, so you can count on it appearing then, and we'll have more next week here on The Bill Barnwell Show. So thanks so much for listening.